church family, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Psalm 56? Psalm 56. We'll read the whole chapter together. Psalm 56. Beginning in verse 1, God's word says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. But when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife and they lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crimes will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, we come and we are reminded that you are saving peoples from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. That it does not matter the language in which the name of Jesus is called upon, only that the person calls upon the name of the Lord and whomever, wherever, however, they call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. So Father, I am thankful that even here in rural Alabama under this roof, There is a body of believers of diverse backgrounds and heritages. Of some people who for whom English is a first language, some for whom Spanish is a first language, but all of whom are united in Christ by the Spirit. I pray, O Lord, that you would expand that footprint. That our church would look more and more like heaven looks every week. Father, this morning I'm preaching, no doubt, to suffering people. People that are sad. People that are traumatized. People that have faced the abuses of this world who have been oppressed by the the ingenuity of man and the wickedness of this world. And I pray, God, that today in their affliction you would visit them and offer them real and substantial hope in this service that God they would be able to go through their week and know and know that their God is for them we ask these things now in Christ's name amen you may be seated on June the 22nd 1941 Germany attacked Russia 
and the significance of Germany attacking Russia in 1941 is that they already had the Allies on the ropes. Britain particularly is backed up into a corner and Germany is advancing. And it appears as though no one is going to be able to really stand in their way and stop the advances that the Nazi army was making. And that is until Hitler got bold and audacious as Hitler was and decided that he would surprisingly declare war on Russia too. He thought that he would go in and that he would shock Stalin and the Russian forces, the Soviet forces, by coming in unannounced. And it would be a particular surprise because Hitler himself had signed a peace treaty with Russia. And so he expected to be able to come in with his blitzkrieg attack and be able to, to storm into Russia and be in and out with hardly no problem at all, except, except what he faced was an enemy that came wave after wave after wave. They didn't have the supplies. They didn't have the technology. They didn't all have the training that the Nazi soldiers had. But what they had was grit and numbers. And wave after wave after wave, they came. And then all of a sudden, they lasted a little longer than what they planned. And the Russian winter set in. And it became a war of attrition. Who would be able to outlast the other? Who would be able to survive in the horrible, harsh conditions of the Soviet winter? And ultimately, the Russians were able to prevail over the Nazis. And the significance of this is now Germany was fighting a war on two fronts. Here they are, pressing into the West, advancing in the West, seemingly unstoppable in the West. And then their arrogance gets the best of them. And now they're adding the Eastern Front as well. And their resources are spread thin. Their forces are spread thin. Their, their uh, morale is beginning to diminish. And it was the beginning of the end of the Nazi advance. When we come into 1 Samuel chapter 21, what we find is David fighting a war on two fronts. We find David in a situation that is obviously up until this point at least the most desperate in all of his life. Where he's spread thin and it seems like everything that he does, every decision that he makes, makes a bad situation worse rather than a bad situation better. You ever been there? He's in... Uh, he, he's been anointed king and he's delivered Israel from Goliath and he's been brought into the courts of Saul. And Saul becomes insanely jealous, as you heard from Tony last week, he becomes jealous over David and begins to call for David's life. And so David goes on the run. And where does he run? He runs the only place that he can run. And you know where that is? A place called Gath. Now, do you remember the significance of a place called Gath? We talked about this two weeks ago. Who was from Gath? Anybody remember? Goliath. Goliath was from Gath. And just before he goes into Gath, he goes and sees Ahimelech. And Ahimelech gives him, he says, Ahimelech, I need a sword. I'm on the run. I've got all these problems. And Ahimelech says, I've got one sword that I can give to you. Guess which one it is? It's the one that you took off Goliath. So the picture, I want you to have this picture in your mind, is David has just killed the champion of Gath. And here goes David seeking political asylum in Gath, holding their own champion's sword in his sheath. This is Osama bin Laden seeking asylum in New York City. 
and he is received about that well, okay? So he runs, he's on the run from Saul, trying to get away from Saul to spare his life. He flees into Gath, and then Achish, the king of Gath, says, well, I want to kill you too. Why'd you come here? And all of a sudden, his situation goes from bad to worse. I wonder how many of you feel like you're fighting a multi-front war tonight. I wonder how many of you feel like every time you turn around, it's not something getting better, but something else going wrong. First, it was your job. Your job was hard, and your job wasn't satisfying, and your job was stressful, and you've tried and tried to make every cut that you can and every change that you can, but it hasn't gotten better. But then you come home, and now marriage has gotten hard, and, and then your health has begun to diminish, and your kids are seemingly distant and cold to you, and it seems like every passing year, rather than getting better, there's just another battlefront added to life. Now you can identify with where David is. You can understand what David is feeling and how David is thinking and what David is processing through. Through the big story, we're just now getting to where this really comes into play, but we're not just going to go Genesis to Revelation. We're going to do this chronologically. You may, you may not be aware of this, but the Bible is not written in chronological order. Okay, that, that you have some of the Psalms that are written during the time of David. You have some of the Psalms that are written during the time of court. You have, you have these different moments in which they're taking place. Some of the prophets, they happen at different times and at different places. And what I want us to do is be able to place those different parts of the narrative within the story so that you can begin, hopefully, within your mind, seeing how this big story all fits together. And so this morning, rather than preaching 1 Samuel chapter 21, which would be the next place that we are, I want us to preach from Psalm chapter 56. And the reason that I want to preach from Psalm 56 is that if we just read 1 Samuel 21, we're tempted to think only about the circumstances. We're tempted to think only about the events. But there's a lot more that's going on in 1 Samuel chapter 21 than just the events of, of Saul, of David fleeing Saul into Gath. There's more than just the, the existential threat to David's life. There's also how David feels. There's how David copes. There's how David thinks. There's a battle that's going on that you can't see from the outside. A battle that all of you are all too familiar with. And what I'm thankful of when the Bible is that the Bible doesn't just tell us what happens to the people. It tells us how the people react and how the people respond and how the people think and how the people cope and how the people fail. I'll tell you this week, man, that God has used the Bible in that way just to minister to me. And so I want you to have, as we read these words from Psalm 56, the context in which that is placed when David is, at this point, as a very young man, hardly 20 years old, at one of the most desperate places in all of his life, facing this multi-front war. And what we're able to see is a parallel with how David copes with a storm in his life, paints a picture of how we can cope with a storm in our life, how we can deal with it. So here's the first thing I want you to see. I want you to see that our hope is bigger. Our hope is bigger. 
You'll see there in verses 1 and 2, really what David is doing is he's calling out, he's asking for mercy from God and grace from God, and he's asking it because his problem is really big. And so he takes verses 1 and 2, and he's really painting a picture of the enormity of his problems. The first thing you notice is just the intensity of the problem that David is facing. He, taught, he uses the word trample twice. I, I feel like under my li- in my life that I'm, I'm in the midst of the stampede and all these, these, these people are just running all over me that I can't do anything about it, that I'm essentially powerless and helpless to be able to, to fight this battle that's coming at me from every different side. I just, feel, I just feel trampled. Not only that, he feels attacked. I feel like people are lying in wait, looking on every side, just waiting to jump out of the bushes, just waiting to, to pounce on me. He has that very real understanding of how our enemy is a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour. In, in David's life, this isn't a spiritual idiom. This is real life. This is what he's struggling with, that it seems around every corner and in every curve and behind every rock may just be the end of his life. He's just under constant attack. And so he says, I feel oppressed. That is, and see if you identify with this, David doesn't just feel knocked down, David feels held down. That's different, isn't it? It's one thing to be knocked off the horse and to be able to get back up and get on the horse. It's another thing for the horse to stand on top of you. That's how David feels. And that's why we can kind of transition. He's not just talking about the intensity of the attack. He's talking about the duration of the problems. Notice what he says. Not only is he oppressed, being held down, but it's all day long. Comes up twice, right? All day long. In other words, I wake up in the morning and I have a shot of adrenaline because I don't know if I'm going to make it to bedtime. From the time I wake up until the time in which I'm finally so exhausted, I just collapse into my bed at the end of the night. I am under attack. I am being oppressed. I am being pursued. My life seems to be unraveling. Everyone seems to be against me. All circumstances seem to be crashing down on top of me. And honestly, if you were to ask me, I think duration is harder than intensity. Most of us, we can survive almost anything for a season. We can survive almost anything for a day or for a week or for a season. It's when it doesn't go away. It's when it doesn't stop. It's when you thought 2019 was turning into 2020 and 2020 was going to be better. And 2020, everything came apart. And you thought 2021 was going to be better and 2021 brought new challenges and new problems and new difficulties. You've thought this in your life. Didn't you think your life would be better by now? Didn't you think your relationship with your dad would be better by now? Didn't you think your relationship with your kids would be better by now? Didn't you think your job would be better by now? Didn't you think you'd be financially established by now? Didn't you think that your anxiety would be behind you by now? Didn't you think that by now you would be able to get to the other side? And it's not even necessarily the intensity of the problem. It's that it just never goes away. You never have a break. You never take a breather. It's exhausting you. Y'all, that's where David is. That's where David is. David is here and he's wrestling with this thought. And so what we're getting is insight, not just into the circumstance that David is facing, but how David feels about it. 
how David struggles through it. Notice what it says. He begins to pivot in verses 3 and 4, and he's moving from the circumstances, from the size of the problem in verses 1 and 2, to how he responds to the problem in verses 3 and 4. But look at how he, he starts it off. He says, when I am afraid. When I am afraid. In other words, he's saying, this is how I respond when I find myself spinning out of control. This is how I respond when I feel as though I'm fighting a multi-front battle that I cannot win. A, a battle that endures far longer than I ever expected it to last. He says, when I'm afraid, this is how I respond. I don't know about y'all, but I take comfort in that David gets, becomes afraid. This is the giant killer. This is the man that faced down the lion and the bear and Goliath. This is the man, when I think about the champion of God, the one who stands with valor and courage and guts, I think the first name I come to would be David. And yet David says, I, I fear too. I also struggle with being afraid. And in David, in this circumstance, we're reminded that in all of our suffering, there are two realities that we must face. There is the, the situation itself. There is the trauma itself. There is the abuse itself. There is the problem itself. There is the, the pain itself. But there's also how you feel about it. And in all suffering, if you try to only face the circumstance, in our minds so often we think, if I can just make the circumstance better, I'll be better. But for how many of us has the circumstance improved only to feel like internally we're still spinning out of control? To feel like we're still smothered and drowning even when our marriage improves, even when job gets easier, even when our savings account is larger than it was. Internally, we're still spinning out of control, and it's because you can't fix what's on the inside by fixing what's happening on the outside. Now, in all suffering, in every storm of life, you better deal with both realities, the reality seen and the reality that only you know about. What you're dealing with in the real world and what you're dealing with in your heart. And so that's what David's doing. David is being, he, he doesn't feel any pressure to be stoic and collected and together like all of us seem to feel. He, he, he's, not, he's, not, he's not under the weight of this Western concept that I, that I exist outside of myself only in the circumstances that I endure. He's real. And so what David says is that he ultimately is able to meet the multi-front war in his life with a multi-dimensional hope. He meets the multi-front war with a multi-dimensional hope. And here, here, here's what's good news, y'all. This is accessible to you today. The hope that David has, what enables David to endure, is not some superhuman strength. It's not some, some supernatural courage, this wherewithal that makes him naturally stronger and more courageous than all of us. He is afraid. What's accessible to us is the real hope, the real substantial multidimensional hope that David has. And David has what we're offered so how does he combat it? Look at what he does. He, he's, he says there's three things. He says, first of all, I put my trust in you. The, the idea here is something of intentionality. I, I'm intentionally focusing my mind in a specific direction. So the, the, the word that comes into my mind is the word concentrate. That, that what he does is he says, I concentrate on the Lord. I concentrate on God. 
You know how it is when your life is spinning out of control. Your brain is spinning out of control and it's fractured and goes in a million different directions. And it's like you can't really get a grip. And so it takes effort. It takes intentionality. It takes focus to be able to concentrate in the midst of life spinning out of control in a multi-front war. It takes concentration to focus your mind upon the Lord and upon the Lord alone. He says, I am determined that I'm going to put my mind, I'm going to put my trust, I'm going to put my hope upon the name of God. Then we get to that second dimension. So the first dimension, I'm going to concentrate on the Lord. The second dimension that we get is he says, in whose word I praise. I think what we see in the second dimension is how. How does he concentrate himself upon the Lord? How does he focus his mind upon God when there's so many other threats that are happening and so many other problems that are happening? He says, I go back to the word of the Lord. I praise him that he has made a promise to me that I am his anointed. I praise him that I have a a history that records his faithfulness across the generations. I praise him and I remember that he has kept his covenant to all of Israel over all generations because he is great not because we are great I have the word of the Lord and I am able to concentrate myself when all of my life seems to be spinning out of control when I seem attacked on every side I focus my mind on the Lord by remembering his promises by remembering his faithfulness by praising him for his word see God's word is the content of your hope God's word is the content of your hope And then we get to this final dimension of his hope. And he says this. He says, what can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? What can what is temporary stop? How can what is temporary stop me who God has established forever? Do you hear that? Let let me tell you what, what David's doing. Because this is what's so helpful for us. David is on one hand zooming out. And on the other hand zooming in. That's what he's doing. Here's what we do with our problems. When we, whenever we, we are attacked or we become anxious about something or we become overwhelmed by a scenario in our life or a storm that's, that's hit, we zoom in on the problem, don't we? Well, guess what? If you zoom in on a dust mite, it looks like the boogeyman. Right? You put a dust mite under a microscope and all of a sudden the dust mite looks like the boogeyman going to come and take you out but it's just dust. It's just dust. In our lives, we zoom in on the dust mites, don't we? In our lives, we zoom in on the smallest problem, but we zoom in so intensely and we concentrate so deeply and we focus on them so powerfully that in our lives, those things that are ultimately dust, those things that cannot last, those things that cannot stop us, those things that cannot kill us, we zoom in on them and they look like the boogeyman. And they overwhelm us. And they terrify us. And they stop us in our tracks. And so David says, what can man do for me? I'm zooming out. I want to see man in his perspective. I want to see my attackers in proper perspective. And ultimately, my attackers are sovereign over nothing. Ultimately, my attackers have no threat against me, a child of the living God. My attackers can do nothing. I'm zooming out so I can see my problems in full perspective. But at the same time, I'm going to zoom on in. Because my problem is not just that I'm seeing my problems too big. It's that I'm seeing my God too small. 
So I'm going to zoom in on God with everything that I have. I'm going to take all the promises and I'm going to latch on to them. I'm going to take all of his proven faithfulness and I'm going to latch on to it. I'm going to think back through my life and I'm going to think back through the triumphs that I've had by the power and the kindness of God over the course of my life. And I'm going to zoom in on them so I can see them bigger in my life forever. So that I can know that as big as my problems are, my hope, my hope is always bigger than my problems. Can I tell you that's the case for you? That's the case for you. There is no problem that is bigger than the hope that you have in Christ. He has conquered the grave. He has defeated the power of sin and the penalty of sin in your life. He has overcome it all. And now you are in him and he is in you. And you are, he is with you always to the very ends of the age. He is with you, man. And there is nothing, there is nothing that can triumph over you. What is man? What are our problems except here today and gone tomorrow? Mere dust in the air. So from David, we see that our hope is bigger. But not only that, we see that our pain is known. We see that our pain is known. This is my favorite part. We see that our pain is known. He takes verses 5, 6, and 7, and he really goes back to verses 1 and 2, and he's beginning to give us more, uh, a deeper insight into the nature of the problems that he has. He says that they're, they're lurking, that idea of a predator waiting to, to pounce on him. They're causing me strife. They're causing me, me problems. And he says, for their, for their crime, will they escape? And I think what he's doing is he's really sizing up his problems for us so that we can understand that what David is facing are real problems. Real problems. He's remembering back. He, he's writing this in retrospect, thinking back to that 1 Samuel 21 experience that he had. And as he thinks back, he's remembering that in those moments, those problems were very real. And I use the word real specifically because I want you to think of real as being in two different ways. First of all, they're real and not imagined. In other words, there's a, there's a trick that our minds like to play on us that, that compound guilt in the midst of trauma, that compound guilt in the midst of hardship and suffering, in which we begin to diminish the suffering and the pain that we're actually experiencing. Where we begin to diminish the problems that we actually had. And we, we begin to think, man, it's contrived. It's all in my head. Think about all the other pro- people that have real problems. I can't go and unburden myself. I can't go and seek help for this. I can't go to the Lord. The Lord's got bigger fish to fry. Like, like the, this is just really big in my imagination. And we begin to dismiss the reality of our problem. But here is David. And what David is ultimately saying is what I have are real problems. They're, they're, they're not figments of my imagination. I'm, I'm not making this up. And there's hope in that for us. Because what David understands is what I want you to understand. God actually cares about your problems in the real world. I think so many of us think that God only cares whether or not we go to heaven or hell. And that's just not the case. God cares about how your marriage is going. And God cares about how you're dealing with your career. And God cares about your children and your relationship with your children. And he, he cares about the distress that you feel over the loss of a parent or the loss of a spouse. He cares about the sorrow that you're dealing with. He's involved in real world problems. Your problems are not contrived. Your problems are not figments of your imagination. Your problems are realities that God deeply is concerned with. So I want you to think of real and not imagined, but I also want you to think of real and not necessarily spiritual. 
of course we know the role that David plays in redemptive history. We know that through David, the, the, the Christ is going to come and, and sit upon his throne. But in this problem, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, what we have David experiencing is not spiritual problems, so it's just regular real life people problems. He is facing enemies that don't like him. He's facing people that are seeking to discredit him. He's he's facing people that are slandering him and have betrayed him and are seeking to do him harm. I think in our minds sometimes, we think that God wants to help the missionaries who are on the frontier battling back the demons. Or maybe God is ready to help the, the pastor who is leading the church. Those are spiritual problems. But in the real world, God leaves us to fend for ourselves. And in the real world, God leaves us to deal with our problems the best that we know how by our own energy and by our own strength and by our own ingenuity. But what David understands is that God is not just concerned with spiritual problems. In God's eye, Every problem is a spiritual problem. Every problem is the result of the corruption of sin upon this creation. And so God is concerned with all of your struggles and all of your strife and all of the enemies that come against you and all of the the slander that you face and the betrayal that you face and the pain that you face and the hurt that you face. God is not just concerned with what we perceive as spiritual problems. God is concerned with every real problem in your life. He cares about all those things. And so I think if I was to boil down the main point of Psalm 56 to a single point, it would be this, that God meets real problems with real concern. That's what David realizes. That's what David discovers. If you'll look there in verse 7, there's a rhetorical question that's asked, right? He's talking about his enemies, and David says in verse 7, for their crime, will they escape? Here's what David is saying. David is asking, God, do you even care? Do you even care that these people are trying to take me out? I'm supposed to be your anointed. I'm supposed to be the one who has a heart after you. I'm the one that defended your honor that day against Goliath. I'm the one that is representing and trying to to do right by you. God, do you even care? All of these people are seeking to destroy me and kill me and squash the promises that you have made. Do you even care about all the pain that I face? Listen to the power of the answer. Listen to what he says. He answers himself, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? David's realization is that God knows and God cares. That God knows and God cares. I'll let this minister to your heart this morning, church. He says... God knows every single wandering, every single pacing back and forth I've made across this desert trying to live. He knows, he, he knows the number. He's, he's carving tallies in the side of the walls of heaven. He is keeping up with every single night I have tossed and turned and spun in the bed, unable to rest easily because of the oppression that I'm under. He knows the number of nights I've laid there and prayed and the number of prayers that I've prayed as I've called out on his name. He knows how many times I've paced back and forth at the floor of my home, uncertain about how tomorrow is going to work out. God doesn't just know the number of hairs on my head. He knows the number of minutes in which I have agonized in suffering and trauma in this life. He says something powerful. He says, the tears that I have, 
They've been stored in a bottle. The word bottle is used here is the same word that is used to talk about what they would put fine wine in to protect it or what they would use to put expensive perfume. You think about the story of Jesus with the lady that has the bottle of nard, right? This is the same kind of bottle. And the idea is is that this is a bottle that you put treasured things in to protect it. That essentially what David is saying is that God treasures up the depth of my tears. I want you to think about that. One day there's not going to be any tears. We know that. Oh, and that is glorious hope. That is real hope. But right here, right now, we bury people that we love. Right here, right now, we experience the devastation of, of dreams being crushed and coming unrealized. We, we know what infertility, infertility feels like, and we know what disappointment and career ambition feels like, and we know what pain in marriage feels like, and we know what the rebellion of children feel like, and we know what poor health feels like. We know what all of those things feel like, and with them come tears. And the idea that we're not going to cry one day doesn't always make you feel good in that moment, but oh, 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 brother, oh, sister, let me tell you something. God knows, and God cares, and every tear that streams down your face is treasured up in a bottle in heaven, kept for you, and it is preparing for you a seat of glory, for I Consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to come, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. All of the hairs of your head counted. All the pacings of your life counted. All the tossings in the night counted. All the tears streaming down your face counted. All of it is written down in the book. And brothers and sisters, for all eternity, by the promise of God, by the power of God, by the security of Christ himself, all of that is going to be in, repaid to you in treasure for hev- in heaven forever. Oh, there's hope, brothers and sisters. There's hope. And I've thought about how many times when I pray, uh, you can ask John, he, he, he comes to the door sometimes and he sees me pacing in my office. And it's, a, it's an awkward eye contact in that moment, right? Um, but when I pray, I pace. And as I was writing this, I thought about how in, in that office right down there over the last eight years, I've, I have paced through some of the hardest times of my life. And God knows how many carpet squares I've stepped on. God knows how many times I've been at the end of myself and cried out. He has the number on the wall. I thought about Mary and the loss of her brother. And every day I, I see her posting a new verse on, on Facebook of, of just hope as she grieves the loss of her brother. And Mary, the Lord knows the number of tears that have streamed down your face and the number of thoughts that you have about your brother and the pacings. I've thought about Mary and Ralph as he struggles with ailment and sickness related to Parkinson's and, the, and he's got a broken hip and the turns and she talks about how they have to turn him in the bed and how hard it is and, and the Lord knows how many times she has had to turn her husband in the bed. I, I think about how many of you have lost, lost babies that you wanted to hold in your arms but never held them in your arms but the Lord knows the sleeplessness and the insomnia. I thought about how many of you have, have went through the valley of the shadow of death in your marriage but the Lord, the Lord he's there and he knows he knows how many times you couldn't make How many days you didn't think you had another step in you? He knows. The Lord knows. And the Lord cares. You know what? Christ's life wasn't just about victory and resurrection. It was primarily about that. 
But the reason that Christ came also was as a manifestation of how intently God desires to know what your sufferings are like. Through Christ, God knows what it's like to cry. Through Christ, God knows what it's like to be betrayed. Through Christ, God knows what it's like to be hungry. Through Christ, God knows what it's like not to have a place to lay down your head at night. Through Christ, He knows because He intends to know the sufferings and the anguish of His people. He knows and He cares. Can I say that one more time to you this morning? Praying that God will apply it to your heart in hope. God knows your depression. God knows your anxiety. God knows your pain. God knows your suffering. God knows the strife. God knows the betrayal. God knows the agony. God knows and God cares. That brings me to my final point this morning. Is that our joy is assured. Our joy is assured. I love the then in verse 9. The then. The then is pointing backwards to everything that's just been said. He's saying, if our hope is bigger... If, if God knows all of our pain, if all of those things are true, then this is going to be the reality. Then this is what we can be certain of. Then this is the hope that we're able to carry forward in real life that is accessible to us today. And all the struggles that we have and all of the pain that we know and all the tears that we cry. If all of that is true, then this, this is what we can boil our lives down on. This is the bedrock that we can build our families on as we dedicate the children this morning. This is the bedrock that you can build your marriage on. This is the bedrock that you can can take to the bank and know that it's never going to crumble beneath you. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know. God is for me. God is for me. That is Throughout the psalm, in Psalm 56, David is praying two prayers, two simple prayers. First of all, God, show mercy to me. God, show grace to me. And secondly, God, show wrath to my enemies. Overcome them. Let them know your justice. I want to experience your grace and walk in your grace and testify to your mercy. But I need them. If I know grace, they must know justice because they are coming against me and you and all of your promises. So God, let there be grace. Let there be mercy. And here at the end, David says, both of those prayers are answered in a single reality. God is for me. Now remember, he's writing this in retrospect, right? He's, this, this is hindsight. He's looking back at the experience that he had. He comes to the realization, that is, years later, who knows how long later, as he writes this, that God was for him even when it didn't feel like it. You see, child of God, it doesn't always feel like God is for you. But if you were in Christ, God is for you. David is able to look back over the course of his life and see the, 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 the flags of providence marking his life to know that the sovereignty of God interrupted him in a way that in the midst of his tears, in the midst of his tossings, in the midst of his wanderings, in the midst of his sufferings, he could not have known. But now, looking back, he says, what I can testify as I have seen my enemies find the justice of God, as I firsthand have experienced the mercy and the grace of God, what I can tell you is 
is in the midst of my tears and in the midst of my sufferings and in the midst of my anxiety and depression, what I have come to be convinced of is that God is for me. God is for me. I wrote this sermon over the last four years. The scourge of my existence has been headaches, you know? And, And I have been doing so much better. But Wednesday when I was writing the sermon, I had a migraine. I didn't feel like doing it. I didn't feel like being here. I didn't feel like doing much of anything. And I about broke when I came to the end. And I think, you know, right now it doesn't feel like God is with me. I feel betrayed in some sense. I don't want my, I'm 35 years old. I'm supposed to be in good health. I'm not supposed to have these kind of struggles. In my worst headache, God is for me. In the day in which I have no faith left to show toward him. In the day in which my praise has been exhausted from my bones. God is for me. Because God's God's devotion to me is not contingent upon my feelings toward him. And I bet that some of you are angry toward God. And can I tell you something? Even in your anger, God is for you if you are his child. Some of you are, 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 are cursing in the darkness of the night. And can I tell you, God is for you. Some of you are depressed. And in your depression, you can't even conceive of, of anything but a pessimistic future. And can I tell you, God is for you. In fact, Paul takes Romans chapter 8. And he expands on the principle of Psalm 56. And what he says in Romans chapter 8 is that the the experience that we have with God's grace is a greater fulfillment than what David knew in Psalm chapter 56. That Romans chapter 8 is is the, the fullness of what it means that God is for us in light of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. That now, now, how can we know that God is for us? He has sent his son for us. How can we know that God is for us he has raised his son for us how can we know that God is for us he has sent his spirit to us to apply that Jesus is the firstborn of our own resurrection the first race and how we will be raised that we can be certain that God has overcome our enemies and will continue to overcome our enemies because of who Christ is we can be certain that that we will know his grace and that those who are enemies will know his justice because Christ has come and Christ has come Victoriously, So listen to what he says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Writing this to a suffering church. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall it be, I apologize, shall it be, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are all being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why can we not be separated from the love of God? Because through Christ, God has proven that he is for his people. You see, brothers and sisters, I know your problems are big. I know you are facing a multi-front war in your life. But however big your problems are, however many fronts you're fighting on, your hope, your hope is a lot bigger. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.